glad to see you all. Welcome. Is everybody glad to be here this morning? I said, is everybody glad to be here this morning? There we go. I'm glad you're all away. Great. It's good to see you all. We're going to celebrate this morning. If you want to stand, if you want to sit, that's great. We're going to celebrate with a couple songs. We're going to start this morning. We're going to sing about the goodness of God. So feel free to join us in worship. This is goodness.
thousand stories of what they think you're like I've heard the tender whispers of love in the dead of night and you call me that you're pleased and that I'm you're a good good father it's who you
Oh 
No other name above heaven and earth that can fill our praise than the name of Jesus. Father God, whatever stands before us, whether it be in the darkness of a COVID, of a pandemic and everything else, no variant, no delta, no nothing else can stand before the name of Jesus. Lord, there is no other anything that can stand before the power of God Almighty. No matter what the media says, no matter what government says, no matter what anybody says around us, we know who you are. Father, I stand today to proclaim that the name of Jesus and the power of God Almighty can stand and thwart all of the darkness, whatever comes through all of our TV screens, our announcements, our newspapers, our magazines, whatever. Father, anybody who is facing a darkness this day, may they see the light of Jesus in their homes. We pray, God, against any reentry fear of, of coming out of the darkness we have experienced in the last months. As we look at, as Jesus stood before and looked over his city and he cried that day, his tears were not just tears of grief and failure, they were tears of power and of might. Lord, we know that it was through those tears that we could stand today and say we have salvation of eternal life. Yes, he went to the cross. Yes, he shed his blood. Yes, he went to the tomb. But on that day when that tomb was opened and he walked out, Father, when that tomb was, that stone was rolled open, it wasn't so that he could get out. Lord, it was so that we could get in. So that we could see. So, Father, let not any fears stand in our way of seeing who Jesus really is. Let us celebrate this day. Because as Jesus wept over that city, let us be reminded it was those tears that he cried so that we could understand and know the power of the true Savior of this world. And if there is anybody listening to this message that will come from your heart through our pastor's voice this morning, if there's anybody who doesn't know him as Savior this day, may they not <laughs> turn off that television, leave this place, or deny anything else other than Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, and Master of this world. For it is in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. Please be seated. You guys can grab a seat and good morning. You doing well? All right. I'm getting like smatterings of you guys are slowly waking up. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I, before I get to share with you as we continue to unpack the story of Lazarus, I'm really excited because we have a friend. Uh, one of our family members is back from Costa Rica right now. Uh, Dawn is still down there, but we have Jill with us this morning, and so I want to invite Jill Shannon to come on up. Uh, we, you guys have heard many things about, you know, maybe in, in passing what's been going on. I just wanted her to be able to share what they have been up to down there, because I'll tell you, they have been absolutely busy, and it's really exciting to see how God has been using this COVID season to do some amazing things down there. So Jill, why don't you share with us what's been going on? Okay, great. Is this working right? Yes, it is. Okay, cool. So for one, I just love the song, Good, Good Father, because he's the father and this is my family. And 
<laughs> Don, I know, would, he really wants to be here. I had to come back for a work meeting, and he's staying back. But we, you know, you guys are our, our church, and we just love you guys. So I just wanted to start with that. Um, you know we also love Costa Rica, and um, in the past we're only able to go there, you know, short visits. But because of the pandemic, I've been able to work remotely. So we've been there since October and um, been doing a lot of things. So I'm going to just share some of it. So um, next slide. <coughs> One of the first things, um, there's um, a lot of poverty there, of course. And we got to know one family of nine people. Um, there's a mom and dad and seven kids. And the reason they have so many kids is their niece, who is an addict on the streets of San Jose, had four kids. And they wanted to keep them together. So they adopted the four kids. So they go from baby to 15. Uh, most of them are girls. There's only one person that can work in the family who's the dad, and he's a fisherman. And the CPS was going to take away the kids because there was no bathroom, no really good living conditions, uh, no beds, um, or not enough beds. And so we kind of got involved. You can show the next slide. And um, we got some beds donated and got mattresses for them. Don helped them with the bathroom. Um, and so Right now, they're all together, and they're very happy. They have a very makeshift house. You can show the next slide. Um, but um, it's, it's great. And the children, you guys know if anyone's gone on any mission trips, they come and they hug you, and they're just so appreciative. Um, the lady in the top right is the mom. And, um, and they don't really even have furniture for dinner. They just stack those chairs and unstack them, and they sit there. They don't have a table, but they're a very um, happy family, and we're, we're happy to be able to help them. Um, next, um, there's another lady, she's a single mom, you know, that's pretty typical there, a lot of single moms with the low paying jobs and the typical hourly salary is about $2 an hour for somebody who um, is at minimum wage and so this, that's this one lady, Donya, and you can see her house on the left before we helped her and then on the right is afterwards. And um, did I do that right, left, right? Yes. <laughs> and um, so she has an outdoor kitchen, which is typical, but it was a, a mud floor and a corrugated roof, tin roof that was falling apart and really dangerous, like it could have fallen on them and the kids. And when it would rain, it would just be a river of mud going through the kitchen because it was a mud floor and she had no protection or walls. So we built walls, you can show the next slide, and gave her a new roof. And um, this is the eating area before and after. So before, you know, it was just basically falling apart. And, um, and then they brought in that, that big piece of wood for a table. But now they have a nice kitchen. Um, next slide. And uh, this is her cooking area before and after. So it's just much more tidy with her sink and everything. So um, we were really happy to be able to help her. Uh, next slide. And um, one of our friends who's from a, a Nicaraguan town um, in the mountains, um, they had had a flood right after the hur hurricane that hit, I think last October, November. So we were able to offer assistance there just to help them with food and um, clothes and some of the needs because that whole town was wiped out when the river overflowed and took out people's houses. Uh, next slide. Um, so what are we doing now? Um, you know, we um, have been really fortunate, and it's a lot of Eric connecting us, but you guys know Ian Stevenson with Trellis. You hear about Trellis all the time. They're the organization that we 
do the serve day in Costa Mesa and a lot of other things. And I, I know Eric's been involved for years with them, I think going back 15 years, where um, he was able to, uh, Ian got all the pastors together to pray. And as he started Trellis, the whole idea was to pray first. And, um, and so we're basically talking to Ian, who has become our mentor because of Eric, in um, following this vision that Trellis has had in Costa Mesa, that now there's, I don't know, 30-something churches, and when they have a serve day, they have 1,000 people and 300 projects. And the whole idea is that we're better together. And so we love this philosophy because, as you can see, we've been doing a project here for a family or a project here, but the trellis vision is to really affect your community by bringing together other all the churches, um, nonprofits, schools, government. And um, so we're taking that vision to our town of Uvita in Costa Rica. And can you even read the slide? Let me tell you. It says, um, we're better together, uniting churches, nonprofits, individuals to work together. And then Amor Costa Rica is a serve day that we're planning for February, which is just like the serve day here. And then One Voice Worship Night, that's something that some of you maybe have gone to that Trellis does where all the churches come together and they worship together and their, and their worship teams lead and pastors share. And we really have a problem with that in Costa Rica. The churches are like their own silos and they don't really, the pastors don't really interact. And so we're trying to bring the pastors together to pray together. We've been going to some of the other churches, not just the one we're involved with there that are Spanish speaking, just to get to know the pastors and let them know that we're in their community and we care. And then um, we're also gonna do a school supply and backpack giveaway, which is similar to what we've been doing in Tijuana. Their schools start in January and they really need school supplies. Okay, next slide. And then this is um, basically saying that the reason we love the trellis vision is that it improves, it, it improves the whole community. And right now, the community we're in in Costa Rica is really suffering. It, they were poor anyway, but with the pandemic, it's a tourist town because it's by the beach. And so the tourists haven't been coming. People just don't have jobs and there's just not a lot of opportunity. So one of the first things we're gonna do is start English classes. I've been organizing this and in um, August, we're starting a six week course of English. Um, I just announced it and put some flyers up last Sunday and I have people coming out of the woodwork and signing up all their family members and the place I took to make to Xerox flyers they, uh, everyone working there said, oh, can we sign up? So it's really needed, it's free, which is really unusual there. And, and um, so um, we're gonna do that because in a country like Costa Rica, if somebody can speak English, they can make as much money as somebody with a four-year degree. So it's, it's just a huge advantage in life. Um, the next thing is cooking as a small business. Um, we feel like there's a lot of women that have kids and they can't really go off to work, so they're kind of stuck with low paying or no jobs. But if they can, if they know how to cook, like let's just say they make cupcakes and sell to the local restaurant or they do a catering business, they can still have their kids in the house and have their own business. So we're gonna teach them how to turn a certain skill into a business. Um, also, the next one says sewing classes. Um, we've got nine sewing machines in this one room. It's called Oasis Women's Center. And we're gonna have the ladies teach 
the local women how to make curtains and pillows and um, clothes and be able to make a small business out of that. Um, I'll skip that one. Next slide. And then um, cooking as a business classes, this just shows the, um, the facility, this Oasis Center has not been used and Don and I have been chomping at the bit to get people to open it. So finally we're opening it for these classes and um, that just shows some of the women and some of the, um, some of the cooking classes and less. And then this is um, just shows some women that we did a, a local event with. And, you know, we we're going to give the English classes to men and women and teens, but we really have a burden in this community. It's the women that really suffer. It's very typical for them to have, you know, no husband and no boyfriend and to not, not really have a lot of jobs. And a lot of times grandmas or great grandmas are raising the kids. So this is um, some of the women that we've been working with. And then um, anyone who's been on the mission trip, I see a few of you here. Um, when we went to Costa Rica the last, I think, time or two, we worked with Iglesia de la Costa, which is the church that we're, we attend there. It's a Spanish-English church, really good, Bible-believing. And um, we've, we work with them. They have opened doors to some of the orphanages. And we do a lot of delivering food and going and praying with families because they have the connections. And the slide that is on the right is a building that they're building because um, right now they're just a little small um, room. And so they're excited that they're finally getting their building. And then I think the last slide. So Don couldn't be with us today. But this is my husband's important lesson for us all. And you guys know Pirate Don. It's his, a, a Tika friend, a Costa Rican friend, gave him a t-shirt, work like a captain, play like a pirate. So. <laughs> nice. Very fitting. <laughs> hey, you know, hold, hold on, Jill. Um, you know, one of the things that really gets me excited here is Don and Jill have for as long as they've been here, they've been at Lighthouse as long as I have been at Lighthouse. And they have had a heart for missions long before that. But they have had a heart for reaching out to those that uh, may not find their way into the church, but want to love them as the church and about equipping the church to go. And while they were here at Lighthouse as kind of the pastors over helping us get out there, they were really intentional about that. And I know that it's been in some ways confusing having them be down in Costa Rica. It's like, wait, no, you're ours. You can't go. But here's the reality is we don't own anybody. We can't possess anybody and say you can't go. And the reality is when they first came to me, what, five years ago, kind of with this idea of what about coming on and helping be missionaries to Lighthouse, the idea was always we feel like God is calling us down to Costa Rica. And at the time, the vision was in a lot of ways, Don and Jill being like deacons who were out doing stuff, building houses, helping care for people whose houses were dilapidated. But here's what really gets me excited, is that the vision God has for them right now with the, the partnership with Trellis is so much bigger than what Don and Jill could do alone. We've seen the effect of the church in Costa Mesa uniting together where we go. There's not 55 churches. There's one church. Jesus is the head of all of us. And if we can simply stop competing against one another and work together, we can see so much more of an impact in our community and God will get the glory for it. 
And I love the fact that they now get to do that there. They'll still have those opportunities, the, the, the house builds and stuff, but they won't be doing it by themselves. They'll be inviting the larger community. And along the way, relationship will happen. And that gets me really, really excited. So would you join me in praying over Don and Jill and by proxy kind of all of the work that God is doing down there. It's not like they're bringing Jesus to Costa Rica. Jesus has already been there, but they get to kind of wake up to what he's been doing and join him in the process uh, of loving on his image bearers who are really struggling right now. So would you extend a hand as we pray? Father God, I am so grateful uh, that you call some to go. And when, when you call them, you're saying, come with me out of your comfort zone into places that you wouldn't have anticipated. And I'm so grateful for the way that Don and Jill have answered that call and have gone into a place that you have opened the door for. Father, we pray for the relationships that even now you are continuing to bolster. We pray for the relationships between pastors, that you would break down the walls of, of competition or uh, of, of concern that people are going to try to steal sheep and instead recognize that you are the head shepherd and every single part of their church ultimately belongs to you. Would they stop competing against one another and start working together? And I pray that you would use Don and Jill and others that you will call to help be a glue that binds them together. I pray, Father, for the ministry that you're going to do in and through your church, and I pray that your name would be on it and that your image bearers would wake up to how deeply you love them so that you can be glorified and that they will call you Lord. That's our prayer. Father, I pray for your provision over Don and Jill as they do all of these things. I pray for their family, for your protection over their sons who are back here as they're down there. God, we just pray that your hand would be in everything. In your holy name, amen. Hey, Jill, if people want to um, kind of find out more, want to be able to financially support you or pray support you and kind of get a monthly update, how can they go about doing that? Um, there is a website uh, that is for donations. Mm -hmm. It's through Horizon Foundation, which we went through them, um, even though we're kind of mm -hmm. hooked with Trellis. Um, so, gosh. Tell you what, if you would you like to find to out afterwards. more, <laughs> either talk to Jill right afterwards, or you can email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com and say, hey, I'm interested in finding out more about Don and Jill, and we will connect you. That way, it doesn't have to be confusing. Yeah, we really appreciate the people that have been supporting us, and thank you for your mm -hmm. prayers, and yeah, that would be really appreciated. Thank awesome. you. Thanks, Jill. Yeah. All right. Now, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11. We are diving back into a story that we began last week. And it's a story about, and you guys know, when I, when I say the word story, I don't mean something made up. I'm saying it's simply a part of this journey that Jesus took that's recorded in John's gospel. But this is a really important one because over the course of John's gospel, we have encountered like six different miracles. We're about to hit the seventh, and I would suggest kind of the most awe-inspiring, the one that made the biggest splash, and ultimately the one that had the, the sharpest repercussions as well. And this is the story of Jesus raising someone from the dead. And last week, we kind of got the the intro to it. We got some of the stuff that led up to the punchline, but we never actually got to the tomb. So today we get to the tomb and we get to see the punchline and we get to see some of the aftermath. So how does it begin? For those of you who weren't here last week, let me just briefly remind you of how we got here. 
Jesus is with his disciples near the area where John the Baptist had been baptizing out in the wilderness. And he gets word from a couple of gals that are really dear to his heart, Martha and her sister Mary, who live in a city called Bethany. And Bethany was about a mile and a half outside of the walled city of Jerusalem. And because of its proximity, whenever Jesus would go down to Jerusalem for one of the feast days, he would stay with Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. <coughs> anyway, uh, Jesus gets word from the gals that Lazarus has grown very, very ill. <coughs> In fact, they're afraid for his life. And their message to him is simply, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. Again, and this is pretty profound to me, that they don't point out, hey, remember, we've, we've ho you know, housed you all of these times, or remember, the one who loves you is sick with some sort of expectation that he would then jump through the hoop of making it there simply because they'd earned it. Instead, the only thing that they can point to is Jesus' love for Lazarus that would compel him to move, and in fact, it does. But, as, as we noticed last week, Jesus doesn't go really quickly. In fact, he chooses to wait a couple of days before he heads out for Bethany so that he gets there about four days late. Now, that's not mean, his, his kind of waiting does not mean that he killed Lazarus because Lazarus would have already been dead a couple of days. Instead, what it did is it gave enough time in between Lazarus' dying and Jesus' showing up that when he finally raises Lazarus from the dead, it will be awe-inspiring because four days is a long time to be dead, and at this point, the body is starting to smell. And so there's no chance. For the gals, all hope is lost. But as we saw last week, hope, with Jesus, hope is never lost. And then the final little wrinkle that I want to remind us of before we dive in here is that when Jesus' disciples catch wind of the fact that Jesus is planning to head back to Jerusalem, they balk. They're like, Jesus, what are you thinking? Don't you remember that the last time you went to that region, the Jewish leadership tried to kill you? They don't like you. Are you sure that this is a good idea? And Jesus loves these gals and loves Lazarus enough to say, you know what, yes. We're going to do it, even though he knew that there would be repercussions to what he was planning to do. He was very, very aware that when he went back to the region of Jerusalem, and particularly what he's about to do, that this will light a wick that is going to ultimately blow up into all that we remember from, you know, the triumphal entry to Good Friday to the cross and all of that. He knows that this is going to start that train are rolling, and there's going to be no stopping it, and yet he is willing to go anyway. So with that intro, we're going to back up just a little bit and read a couple of verses that we looked at last week, just so we have kind of the context for moving in. So let's start in verse 17 of John chapter 11. Upon his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. This is not because Martha loved Jesus more than Mary loved Jesus. This is not because Martha forgives Jesus, but Mary doesn't forgive Jesus. This is simply because of their personalities and their ages. Martha, as the older daughter, she's the one who is kind of the head hostess. 
And she's already shown from that, that dinner that they did where Martha was out serving and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Their personalities were such that Martha, even though she's grieving, is going to go and be the consummate hostess and welcome Jesus there, whereas Mary has a tendency to kind of just be more kind of caught up in her emotions and staying at home and continuing to grieve. When Martha saw Jesus, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. In other words, she has faith in him, had faith that he could have saved Lazarus, but there's a disappointment because he didn't save Lazarus. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, well, I know he'll rise again on the resurrection of the last day. Like, I, I know that I have hope that, that his death isn't permanent, but... Ah. And then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And this is the verse that we really dove deep on last week because it is incredibly relevant to us today. So if you missed that conversation, I'm not going to go back into it. I would encourage you, however, to go to our YouTube page and you can watch it in its entirety or you can go to our Lighthouse community.com website, and you can get, you know, you can podcast it, uh, but it would be helpful to kind of know that background. So Martha responds to Jesus when he asks her, do you believe this? She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. She said, the rabbi or the teacher is here, and he's asking for you. Well, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him outside of the village. I would suggest he probably did that because he didn't want to impose himself and his whole retinue of followers on their little home and on this village when they're in the process of grieving. He kind of stays out and lets them come to him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly Mary got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Now, let's pause for a moment. Because for those of us in the you know, 21st century Western world, we may not understand what's going on or why there's a whole bunch of people around her. Typically, when somebody in our life dies, we tend to kind of isolate a little bit, and we just grieve on our own. But in Judaism, it's very, very different. Judaism, they are, are great at kind of surrounding a person who is hurting and just giving them space to grieve. In fact, for the first seven days after a loved one dies, there will be a, a group of people that will intentionally come to surround that person, almost like a cast around a broken heart. And they will sit with them for seven days. The process is called sitting Shiva. Shiva meaning seven. So they will sit for seven days and simply allow that person to grieve however that person wants to grieve. If that person wants to process, they will listen. If that person wants to tell stories kind of and reminisce, they'll reminisce with them. If that person wants to be silent, they'll simply sit with them in silence. If that person wants to cry, they will cry with them. And if that person wants to go to the tomb and kind of pay their respects, they'll go with them. And that's what is happening here. You have this group of people, many of whom have come from Jerusalem to surround Mary and Martha and to allow them to be in their process of grief. And when they see Mary get up and rush out the door, they figure she's going to the tomb to grieve, and so they go with her to grieve along with her. Verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, 
she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, pretty much the same words that Martha used. Faith that Jesus could have healed him, but disappointment that he wasn't there to heal him. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now I want to pause and I want to drill into that sentence we just read for just a moment. Because there's a couple of words that the, the translations that we read kind of cover over. And so it makes this feel like it's just kind of a little bit more tapioca than it really is. There's a lot more going on under the surface. And so the first word I want to drill in on is the word that my Bible translates as weeping. When you hear the word weeping, what does that sound like to you? Is that like a, you know, is that like loud or is that more gentle and soft? More soft, right? That's how I read that. Weeping is just, it's kind of like how Marge is when, when her Packers lose or something, right? Or Robin, when, when the angels are once again kind of cut out of the playoffs. It's kind of like there's a, a, there's a sadness that results in a quiet, actually, you know what? I shouldn't say that Marge is quiet. There's nothing quiet about the way that Marge grieves. Robin, Jeff for the Dodgers, Robin, it's the angels. The way that they grieve that is gentle and quiet, although there's a lot of feelings there. But the word in Greek that is translated as weeping is kleo, and kleo is anything but quiet. Kleo is actually a loud wailing. It's the kind of yelling that, like, have you ever heard somebody in the depths of their despair just, like, full-throated, no, you know, I'm not even going to do it now because I honestly don't want to try to, it'll come across as mocking, and it's not intended to. It's just this full-chested grieving out loud. It's a wailing. That's what the word kleo means. And so this group of people are mourning loudly, and Jesus could hear the group coming. Mary's in the front of them. She's weeping loudly, and they're weeping loudly. And I know that to 21st century ears, this would sound ridiculous. I mean, if you were having a funeral and there was somebody in there who was wailing loudly, you'd be like, can somebody please usher that person out because they're disturbing everybody else. But in the East, this was not only common, this was an act of honoring that deceased person's memory. In fact, there were some who would hire mourners to go and weep and wail for the deceased person, kind of like how people send flowers, they would send mourners. This is common practice. And so this is what they are doing as they are weeping and they're wailing as they're coming to Jesus. And as Mary falls down at Jesus' feet and she cries out, Jesus, if you had just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. All behind her, she's surrounded by a cloud of mourners who are wailing. And of course, then, we read that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now, when I read deeply moved in spirit, it, it, it kind of implies that he just, he felt for them a little bit. But that, again, kind of papers over what's really going on here. Because that word, deeply moved in spirit, actually has more to do with him feeling agitated or angry. In, in other Greek usages, when that word comes up in other uh, books, it's often used to describe the snorting of a war horse. So like this, kind of like angry, like, like I'm just, uh. Jesus is feeling agitated and angry, which leads me to ask, well, why? 
Why is he so agitated and angry? Is he angry at Mary and Martha? Is he angry at this group of people who are mourning? And I would suggest that that's not where his anger is directed, although he does feel anger. His agitation and his anger, instead, is directed at the source of their grief, the fact that they are tasting the bitter fruit of sin, namely death. He's upset and agitated about the fact that God, his father's good creation has been so warped that this pain is a regular part of life as we try to navigate this broken, sin-warped world. And so that's the source of his agitation. And even though he knows that he has the power over death, even though he knows, I would su suggest, that at this moment he knows what he's about to do, and he knows he's about to overcome it, he is still agitated and angry about the fact that people suffer in his father's good creation. And at this point, all he wants to do is find out where the tomb is so he can take care of business. And so when he sees them and he is deeply moved in spirit and troubled, he asks them, where have you laid him? Where's the body? Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then in verse 35, we read, Jesus wept. Two words. This is, fun fact, this is the shortest verse in all of Scripture. Jesus wept. For those of you who, who like to memorize Scripture, this would be a good place to start, right? <laughs> you might be able to remember this one. John 11.35, Jesus wept. There you go, everybody, you memorized a verse today. It is the shortest verse in all of Scripture, and yet I would suggest to you it is incredibly profound. It is incredibly important. And in fact, we are going to spend the majority of our time this morning unpacking those two words. Jesus wept. Because here's the thing. I would suggest to you that Jesus' tears are not directed towards Lazarus. He's not crying because Lazarus is dead. Or he's not crying for Lazarus, I should say. Because he knows what he's about to do. He knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Instead, I would suggest that Jesus' tears are kind of an outflow of all of the emotions that are swirling in his chest. I mean, he's got the grief of friends that he cares about, Mary and Martha, who are deeply grieving, and he's touched by that. He feels for them. He's also got the agitation that he feels towards the warping and the brokenness of his father's good creation, that he's just frustrated that it's even an aspect of life. And so his tears are kind of an outflow of that. And now, Ethan, I want you in particular, you probably haven't been listening, but I want you to listen to this part, because this is, this is a belief that I've carried for much, far too much of my life that I picked up on when I was a kid, and so I want to dispel it now for you so you never question this. Because early on, I bought into the belief that tears were unfitting for a man, that tears were a, an outward sign of weakness, that the only reason that you would cry is because you somehow are overwhelmed and you're too weak to deal with that thing. That's what I picked up on. And so for much of my life, I have attempted not to allow myself to cry, and I've tried to tamp down the feelings that are there. But as I've gotten older, what I've realized is that tears are anything but weakness. Tears are simply the outward sign of an inward acknowledgement that we feel. And we, we cry for lots of different reasons. I cried the day you were born. 
I cried tears of gratitude and joy that you were part of it. 13 years ago, those tears were tears of joy. About three years later, when your little brother was born prematurely, and for about three days, we wondered if he had bleeding on his brain that was going to kind of mark his whole life. That was a pressure that we carried, even though we were grateful he was alive. And when, when I, I remember very vividly being out in front of our house, you were playing on the lawn, and I got a call from the doctor. It had been three days of sitting with this weight of, does Grayson have bleeding on the brain? And I got the call from the doctor that, in fact, the, the, the brain scan came back clear, and he didn't have any bleeding on his brain. I cried again. But that time, those were tears of, of relief because I had been so, the weight of just wondering, is Grayson going to, to be permanently marked by his early entrance into the world was a lot of weight. Now, had, it, had the, the call gone differently, and in fact, he had bleeding on the brain, and he, he might have had a lot of impairments due to it, those, I probably would have wept as well, but those tears would have been something different. I have, I have cried at the loss of people that I love. I've cried when I had to put a dog down and had her fall asleep in my arms. I've, I've wept when your mom and I have kind of been so frustrated at one another that we just couldn't get past it. And those tears were tears of frustration in that moment. And obviously we were able to move past it. We worked through it typically in the morning because when you're trying to fight at night, that's not a good time to fight. Just saying, hypothetically, in case that ever happens with your sweetie. Um, but we cry for lots of different reasons. And tears are not weakness. In fact, our tears are a lot like the release valve on the pressure cooker at my house, right? You guys have one of those Instapots and, 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 and it finished cooking and you click that thing over and all of a sudden, you know, it's just coming. That's a lot of what our tears do. They help us to acknowledge that we feel deeply. And it is not weakness to feel. In fact, we all feel, and it's taken me a long time to come to terms with the fact that I have more emotions than simply anger and apathy, and that's okay. To feel is human. And here's the beautiful thing about our Lord, is he took on humanity. He felt, and his tears were not tears of weakness. His tears were not tears of, I don't have the power to overcome this. In fact, he knew he was going to overcome Lazarus's current condition, and yet his tears came because he felt deeply, and it wasn't weakness. It was simply an acknowledgement of the brokenness of this world. And here's what I find so beautiful. Jesus entered into the grieving of these women. He shared with them in that. He was able to acknowledge their pain, and he shared their pain, and he felt deeply and when we read, Jesus himself said, listen, I am the image of the invisible God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That in indicates to you that Jesus isn't the only part of the triune Godhead who feels for us. Our Father God feels for us. And this is hugely, profoundly important. Because my guess is that there are some of you in earshot that grew up with an image of God that's very similar to my image of God that I've carried around for far too much of my life. And that image <clears throat> is of a God who stands back and is untouched by the brokenness of the world that he spoke into existence. A God who stands above our pain and is unimpacted by it. 
I have a picture of an impassive God. Some of you might, instead of kind of an wizened old man with his arms crossed, like, come on, just, just deal with it, right? Don't you realize that the cross, I overcame it all. What, what the heck? Why are you even whining? Some of you, however, might have a picture of God being more like the force from Star Wars, right? It is simply a controlling force, but there's no personality, no heart there. And so how could it possibly feel? And the beautiful aspect of those two words, Jesus wept, is it reminds us that God does in fact have a heart, that he does in fact feel, and that he is in fact able to enter into the emotions that we have when we feel overcome and, and, and brokenhearted because somebody that we love is hurting, or our best laid plans fall shattered at our feet, or the, the, the things that we hoped for have not come to pass. Or we're simply frustrated at the, the brokenness of this world and how evil seems to constantly succeed and it frustrates us because this is not right. Guess what? We're not the only ones who feel that. We have a Father in heaven who feels that as well. Now, I've picked on you, now I'm going to pick on myself. Because I grew up with a Father who was very, very strong. I grew up with a father that I never saw cry. And my dad was my rock. My dad was the guy I would run to whenever I had a problem. Whether it was simply I couldn't open the, the top of the jar of pickles without like almost shattering it on the countertop or because I forgot to put oil in my car hypothetically and, and I broke down on like the first date I had ever had. Super awkward, hypothetically of course. Um, and I needed his help. Like whenever I had a problem, my dad was the one I would run to. But... I never saw my father cry. And so for, to me, he was Superman. And I could never, I never felt comfortable going to my father with my heart. Because how could Superman identify with the weakness of a mere mortal, right? So I didn't, I didn't go and open my heart to my dad because I didn't know if he could identify with it. I would go to my mom instead because I, she, she was very emotional. And so she was very safe for me to open up to. But I got to say this. In the last decade and a half, especially after we've had, he's had grandkids, like, I've seen my father cry more times than I can count on my hands now. My dad will cry over things that bring him joy, like when he found out that we were pregnant, when he got to hold his grandkids, he cries regularly, as well as things that are hard. When I share a story of something that's going on in our life that's difficult, he doesn't only join me in that, but it brings him to tears. And I got to tell you something, guys. That has made my father so much more approachable because, because I realize he has a heart. And so I can bring my heart and my unprocessed emotions to him and he becomes a safe person to process with. I share that with you because in a lot of ways when we think of our father God, our own earthly fathers kind of shape our perspective that for better or for worse. Our heavenly Father also has a heart. Our Father God feels with us, and so it's safe to bring our emotions to Him. And this is really, really important, because a lot of times I almost feel like we have bought into this belief, at least in the, in the 21st century Western uh, you know, world, we've bought into this belief that grieving openly and admitting weakness 
makes us not only look weak, but it will also sh- kind of imply that we lack faith, right? Like, th- 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 to admit to God that we're hurting and we're confused and we're mad somehow denies our faith in him. And so what do we do? We, we, we hurt, but we stuff it down. And when we go to God in prayer, we, we almost kind of like try to put on a happy face, like, oh, God, you're so good. And it's like, dang it. It's not like he's fooled, right? He, he knows our heart before a word is on our lips. He knows what we're feeling. Prayer is not a time to be good. It's a time to be honest. Prayer is a time to come as we are and bring whatever is in there to the foot of our Father and just say, help, because I don't know what to do with this. Not because we are demanding an answer, not because we're demanding that he fix it, but simply because we don't want to have to try to carry this by ourselves and, and we're reminded he cares enough about us to enter into that. And, in fact, he, he's the only one I know that can actually do something about it. And so being able to acknowledge to our Father God what we feel. He's a big enough God to handle the full range of our emotions. He's a big enough God to handle our questions. He's a big enough God to handle our doubts. And we can simultaneously feel sad about the state of our life, the state of this world, and grieve the pain we're enduring while at the same time holding on to our faith and onto our hope that the brokenness of this world does not get the last word. And if you have any question at this point, whether it's okay for you to feel and whether it's okay for you to admit what you feel, all we need to do is look back at the way that Jesus treated a couple of gals who felt deeply. Martha and Mary, both had faith in Jesus, but were also very discouraged that their brother was dead. Both of them were grieving. And rather than Jesus saying, hey, come on now, the, the, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm standing right in front of you. Why are you doing this? Your tears are a slap in the face of me. Rather than saying that, Jesus not only allows them to grieve, but he joins them in their grief. It is okay to feel. It is okay to acknowledge that you feel. It's okay to voice it, not just to yourself or in your journal or even in prayer, but it's okay to acknowledge it to one another. And in fact, the reason why it's so imperative that we gather together is so that we're not trying to carry the weight of this world alone. We are created to do life in community with one another and with our God. And that's why it's so important for us to be together to support one another. And when you guys are carrying something, we want to know about it so we can walk with you. It's one of the reasons why we place such a great emphasis on being in life groups together, doing life together, because you were not created to try to navigate life on your own. And in this world, you will have trouble. If you think that following Jesus is going to help protect you from pain, you're fooling yourself. But if you think that our God stands above your pain impassively and doesn't care, you're also fooling yourself. You've bought into a, a picture of God that is absolutely not who he is. All right, let's keep going. Jesus, oh, I'm sorry. 
when, when the Jews saw Jesus and his tears, this is verse 36, some of the Jews said, see how he loved him. Look at how deeply he loved this man. But some of them said, well, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? In other words, it's kind of ironic that of all the people he helped, he couldn't help this guy that he obviously cared so much about. And yet again, every time Jesus does something, it always tends to divide people. And that's the interesting thing about Jesus. He came to, to reunify. He came to restore us back into relationship with the Father and back into relationship with one another. And yet, more often than not, Jesus is a divisive personality because in a lot of ways, you either love him or you hate him. And we see that even today, don't we? We see that the name of Jesus is divisive. You say the name of Jesus, and some people are going to be like, amen, and other people are going to be judging you, either silently or not so silently. Some people will run to you. Some people will run from you. It's just the reality of the name of Jesus. It's the reality of the power of one who stands above our brokenness, but who also entered into our brokenness. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Jesus, verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And he said, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time it, there's a bad odor in there because it's been four days. Okay, in case you wondered whether they were concerned, she was concerned. You really don't want to roll that stone away. It stinketh in there, Jesus. Then Jesus said, Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up, and he prayed, and he prays vocally here. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. In other words, Jesus makes it very clear that he's a, what he's about to do is by the power of the Father, and it is for their own benefit that, that they may believe who he really is. He's about to light the wick here. And when Jesus had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I, I find it very, I just want to point out one last thing before we move on past this. Jesus easily could have simply come up to the tomb, roll the stone away, Lazarus come out. And where would have all the focus been? On him. Similar to when Moses goes up to the rock, and the first time as they're wandering through the wilderness, he taps the rock. But the second time he did, the, that, he did that, God said, just speak to the stone, and instead he hits the stone, as if he's somehow the one making the stone let the water out. Here, Jesus very clearly wants them to recognize that what is happening is happening by the power of God and not by his own power. And so he prays first, and then he says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth that was over his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, again, when this happens, some people are floored. I mean, how do you... Imagine if you went to a funeral here and we had the casket. It was an open casket. You could see the body. And all of a sudden, somebody stands up and says, you know, whatever. It's that, that person, rise up. And the person sits up. I mean, you would start paying attention to that person, wouldn't you? You'd be like, what on earth did I just experience? Because that doesn't happen. We don't see this happening yet. It's going to happen. It's going to happen to 
everybody, but, but it hasn't happened yet, and this was a unique thing. And so some people, naturally, verse 45, there were many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and who had seen what Jesus did, and they believed in him. Duh, right? You see somebody raised from the dead? Oh, you have my attention now. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So even in the face of somebody raising from the dead, there's a contingent of people who still don't believe or who still are skeptical, who still want an explanation of what they've just seen. So what they do is rather than be like, Jesus, what do I need to do? Jesus, I want to learn from you. Rather than running to him, they go running to the power brokers of their day the religious establishment, and they kind of say, hey, we just saw this happen. What should we make of it? Verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council. And when they got together, we read that they began to pull out their hand. They say, what are we accomplishing? They said, here is this man performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You guys know nothing at all, which, by the way, is a really great way to start a conversation with your peers, right? You guys know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Now, he didn't say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. I find it incredibly ironic. That a gift of life that Jesus gives to Lazarus would ultimately spell, it would ultimately lead to his own death, right? He gives life, and because of that, the Jewish leadership wants to kill him and begin to actively look for an opportunity to do so. They will shortly thereafter pay off one of Jesus' own disciples to betray him, and ultimately they will have him crucified. But of course, this begs the question of why? Why does the Jewish leadership respond this way? Is it simply because they're jealous of Jesus' popularity? I would suggest to you that it's not. I mean, that's too simplistic of an answer. The reality is that the Jewish leadership saw in Jesus a danger to the whole Jewish people, and here's why. The Jewish people were an occupied nation. Although they lived in their homeland, the nation of Rome was, ha, had its boot heel on their neck. The nation of Rome ultimately had control over that land. And any power that they had, any control of, say, the temple, any, any hierarchy that they were able to enjoy and any ability to speak into people's lives was still watched over by the Roman government. They couldn't even put somebody to death without permission from the Roman government which is why they will ultimately have to go beg that Jesus is crucified, because they couldn't do it themselves. Now, what does this mean? It means that when they begin to see Jesus grow in popularity, when they begin to see that people are whispering the name of Jesus and the, as the Messiah together, they begin to get nervous. 
because there'd been already been so-called messiahs that rose up and they, they started a rebellion. And ultimately the heavy hand of Rome had to slap them down. And they recognize that as, as Jesus' name continues to become more popular, as people begin to get more excited about him and more and more people are following him, it's going to be perceived as a rebellion against Rome. And that Rome is going to respond not only by punishing Jesus and his disciples, but all of Israel will suffer. Not only will the nation potentially be completely dissolved and them scattered like it happened before and will happen again, but also, they are afraid that they will lose access to the temple. They will lose their tentative grip on power. And so their decision to kill Jesus is politically motivated to maintain what tentative, tenuous grip on power they have. I, I, I will admit that I am kind of astounded that the Jewish leadership who read the scriptures and who anticipated God sending a, a, an anointed redeemer to his people, that they would interpret miracles like raising someone from the dead, that they, rather than looking at that and kind of thinking to themselves, well, maybe we, maybe we should ask ourselves how somebody has the power to do that. But instead of coming to that conclusion, they simply come to the conclusion that Jesus is a danger and he needs to be silenced. And then the, the chief priest stands up and he says, hey guys, listen, it's better for one person to die than for a whole people to suffer. And he's simply saying, we need to shut this guy up. We need to kill him and silence him so that the rest of Israel can just go on and get on and, and, and kind of survive in this very murky political environment that we find ourselves in. The irony of that is John suggests that his words were kind of prophetic. He's talking about it as let's kill Jesus so that we can maintain our, our standing. But in reality, he's saying, well, that's actually why Jesus came. Jesus did come to give his life. One person dying for all of God's people to be redeemed and restored. And to establish the kingdom of God that transcends any one po political entity in any one time and place. So what Caiaphas was suggesting was true, but he did not have the slightest inkling of how that would come about, because how on earth could he? Caiaphas had bought into the power structures of the world. Caiaphas had bought into the belief that I think a lot of us carry around, that the higher you climb, the more power you garner, the less you suffer the more the people underneath you suffer. The higher you climb, the less you serve, the more the people under you there are to serve you. But here's the crazy thing about the upside-down kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, the higher you climb, there's actually more people above you that you are there to serve. And the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is whom? The servant of all. We're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks because we're about to get to one of the most beautiful pictures of that in the upper room. So I'm looking forward to that, but we're not there yet. This morning, I simply want us, as I invite the worship team to come forward, we're gonna have one response song, but I simply want us to sit 
with a God who may look different from the God that you walked in to worship. You might have walked in to worship a God who stands impassively apart from your suffering and from the suffering that the rest of the world endures. But this morning, I hope that you have begun to look at your Father God a little bit differently because your Father God has a heart. And your Father God is not only aware of your suffering, he enters into your suffering and he feels with you. Here's the beautiful part about it. He feels with you even though he knows how it's going to end, even though he knows that he's going to undo the brokenness, even though he knows that the suffering you endure will not get the last word, still he grieves with you. Even though he knows how what you are enduring right now is actually advancing his kingdom purposes, even then he still grieves with you and feels with you. He also celebrates with you and rejoices with you. We have a father who has a heart, and because of that, we can approach him just as we are, even if we don't have our emotions figured out. And I want to invite you right now in the, in the few moments that we have left today to just spend some time becoming more acquainted with that father. And if that means that you just want to sit there quietly as, as they sing these words, if you just want to sit and be honest with them for the first time in a long time, great. If you want to stand up and lift up your hands or if you want to get down on your knees, you've got some space up here and just kind of it just come as a broken person, that's fine. But let's just spend a few moments familiarizing ourselves with a father who feels because he is safe to come to just as we are. Let's worship together. spoke a
No shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, you're coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, you're coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, you're coming after me.
You know, that I, I, some of us might be thrown by that word reckless, as if God wasn't thinking when he lavished his love upon us. And I would say that that's just a misunderstanding of what we're getting at when we, when we cry out. Because the reality is it was reckless in the sense that he was willing to sacrifice himself. It was a very selfless love. That is, is why we have crosses, a, a Roman symbol of torturous death. For, for much of history, a symbol of embarrassment. I mean, for our modern senses, it would be like having an electric chair sitting up there. It makes no sense, except that that is the symbol of love, of a God who loved us enough to enter into our reality and run to stand in the gap for us. A God who loves us that deeply is one who is safe to come just as we are. And I'm really grateful that we have a Father God who can identify with us. I love the, the words of Hebrews. I'll kind of close with this this morning. When we're reminded that we do not have a high priest, and he's talking about Jesus, not Caiaphas here. We, we do not have a high priest who is unable to identify with our brokenness, but we have one who has suffered and been tempted in every way that we have, and yet he didn't succumb to temptation and sin. And because of that, the, the, the conclusion that the writer of Hebrews comes to is because of that, he is a safe high priest to come just as we are, broken and in process just as we are, and fall down at his feet and say, help, I need help. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with these emotions. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm discouraged. I'm elated. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Whatever it is, whatever those emotions are, we have a Lord who represents our Heavenly Father. The one we have seen helps us understand the one we have not seen. And what He shows us is that He has a heart. And so we can come as we are. And that is good news. We also, as a church, want to be able to walk with you with whatever it is that you're carrying, whether you're here in person or you're at home watching online. We have these connection cards for those of you who are sitting in here. If you're new here, we just want to know that you were here so that we can say hi and let you know about some of the really fun things coming up. we got a couple of fishing trips that I want to let you know about. If you've got kids, we got one this Friday. Don't miss out on that. It's fun to go catch fish in Jesus' name. I mean, Jesus went out fishing every once in a while, so you might as well join him, right? Um, secondly, if you want to find out, if you have questions, if you have prayer requests that you've carried in with you, you can let us know on this connection card, or if you're at home, you can just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. Let us know. We pray several times a week for the prayer requests you let us know about. And if there's a way that we can walk more closely with you, in. We, we live for this. I mean, Jeff and I otherwise only get to work half a day a week. You are our job security, so please let us know how we can walk with you, because this is why we got into ministry. It's not for the pay. It's for the relationships and getting to walk with other people. Secondly, one of our acts of worship is simply giving. And so for those of you who would like to give, you can give online at lighthousecommunity.com. There's a link to give there. If you're here, we have the white boxes in back. You can drop these connection cards. You can drop any financial offering. It's between you and God. We don't pass a plate anymore. But you can still give. Finally, let me, just, let me just go ahead and, if you would, just extend your hands. I would love to pray a blessing over you. 
And this is a blessing that the father spoke over his son on the day he was baptized, on the day he was kind of consecrated and, and, and prepared for the earthly ministry that would lead to the cross. But these are words that he speaks over each of us as well. And so I want to speak them over you. You are my child, whom I love. You have been created in my image. You have been created to reflect my heart into this world. You are uniquely and wonderfully made. And simply watching you grow into the man or the woman that I have created you to be brings me great joy. Now, my Lighthouse family, may we go in the confidence of knowing we have a Father who loves us, who knows us, and who has invited us to be a reflection of his heart into this world. You have a part to play. You don't just go to church. You are the church. So now, Lighthouse community, go be the church. Have a wonderful week.